Welcome to this episode of the Breton Goods Podcast. I'm speaking to Faris Abdurrahman, who uh, w- previously was an analyst at Prospera. Prospera is a, a policy advisory funded by the uh, Australian government to provide economic policy advice to the Indonesian government. Uh, hi, Faris. Nice to have you on. Yeah, thank you, Pradyu. Um, nice to be here. Um, yeah, ready to talk about anything about Indonesia. Anything you want to talk about? Yeah. So, um, now most of our listeners are, you know, they don't really know much about Indonesia. It is a very large country by population, but uh, it gets very little attention in the Western, in the Western media landscape. Um, what's a, a small brief intro you can give to our li- to our listeners who haven't heard enough? Yeah. Well, uh, generally, I wouldn't be. Um, surprised with that perception um where um some people call us the most invisible largest country in the world um i think our weight in international affairs are vast, vastly disproportionate to our size of population and i think um that's a result of well, multiple factors but i think chiefly it's the result of the fact that unlike for example china or india we don't have as much uh, uh they don't have a large diaspora as these other countries do so as a consequence talking about indonesia it does not really enter um you know uh discourses in international media and such because well there's no one else to talk about uh, there's no one else that wants to talk about indonesia there's no diaspora and such and the second reason would be i think the the largely inward orientation of um even most of the indonesian population um i feel like when when you compare indonesia with like philippines or malaysia we're less outward oriented in the sense that we don't pay as much attention to whatever is happening elsewhere compared to whatever is happening inside so there's like this sort of insular um insular culture i guess that makes it really hard for our, for indonesians to interact with with outsiders which is quite strange because well if you look at our history we're like this we're like in this middle um point between china and india and we used to be like the center of trade uh from from especially for those transiting from europe to asia we used to be uh, a more cosmopolitan place so so yeah what is a brief um history of uh, in of uh, indonesia from you know you got independ- you got independence from the dutch there was a small struggle a, a, a small arms struggle and then you had a um, you know a sort of pro uh, communist government with sukarno Correct me if I'm wrong on that. And then there was a coup, and then uh, another, and someone else took over. That is uh, Soharto. And then you had, you know, um, a few years, like many years of cronyist-driven, uh, in uh, growth, which then imploded in 1997 for a variety of reasons. After that, the the economy was slowly rebuilt, made a little more cleaner, a, a little less um, crony-oriented. And then you've had, you know, large levels of. Uh, uh, resource-driven growth and some manufacturing sense. Is that a fair summary? Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, that's a fair summary of 
everything that's happened with the Indonesian economy. Um, yeah, I think that's essentially it. Um, with I I think if you look at the Indonesian economy, we're essentially fine largely by our comparative advantage by what we have, and that is in our um our possession of natural resources. If you look at it, it's something that has always defined the Indonesian economy even prior to you know the birth of the Indonesian state, even when um uh the when the Dutch colonial colonize us. Um, well, the the main motivation for them to to enter Indonesia was primarily that to take control over natural resources, and that has something that's defined the Indonesian economy ever since. Um, the Dutch, the yeah. Japanese too, in fact, for the yeah. brief three years. Yeah, Japanese as well. They wanted oil, and yeah, mm-hmm. that's why they did. They invaded. Mm-hmm. Um, the the the. They are the invaded in the entirety of Indonesia. What was well, there wasn't yet Indonesia back then, but the territories that now form Indonesia. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. You know, you brought up a really interesting point there, which is that um, Indonesia has been, um, you know, has been uh, defined. The the economic history has been defined by its comparative advantage in natural resources, and um, we often see many times in. Um, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, many times in Asia as well, that when countries are defined by their comparative advantage in natural resources, they collapse into ethnic strife, they collapse into civil war, armed conflict. And in Indonesia, while the state isn't you know, as effective as, say, Denmark or Sweden, it, it has been relatively peaceful in the last 50, 60 years. How have Indonesian de- uh, leaders dealt with the events of these uh, resources? Right. Um... Yes, I think that's why um, when you characterize um, uh, Indonesia's relationship with its like uh, possession of natural resources, you wouldn't really classify it together with you know with with the sub-Saharan um, African countries. So instead of a natural resource curse, what you have in Indonesia is well, what I like to call the natural resource comfort zone, in the sense that, okay, um, with natural control of natural resources, we're not going to regress back into, um, yeah, ethnic strife into, um, uh, y- you know, we're not going to become a failed state. But at the same time, our control of natural resources means that we're not going to become like South Korea or Japan. So we can't have like high levels of growth for long periods of time because our economy is largely intertwined with global economic booms and busts. Um, and I think the reason why we 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 don't have the same conditions as as sub-Saharan African countries do, it's primarily because um, I think we had. In terms of institutional capacity, we had a more mature um, nation-building process. So in the case of Indonesia, for example, the idea of Indonesia was not something that that the Dutch told us to, you know, um, to, to be content with. The idea of Indonesia was something that came from the founding founders of Indonesia themselves. 
um, from many of the islands in Indonesia, from Java, from Sumatra, and they came up with this conception of Indonesia together. Um, and so the process of nation building was entirely, you know, you could say it wasn't artificial, it was organic, something that occurred naturally, and that was sort of the glue that held the country together. So that's why we haven't, and hopefully uh, not into the future as well. Um, that's why we, we, we yeah we're we're not regressing into failed state status or anything similar to that. Um, so w- Indonesia has been in news in the last you know maybe two years for the nickel boom, and I and I and I know you've uh, worked on that at Prospera. So can you give us a brief? Uh, can you give us an an introduction into you know what's it all about and how is the government dealing with this? Yeah. So the story about the nickel boom is well it's 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 been quite a long story in the sense that um it started essentially with the decision of the government back then in 2009 um to essentially sort of process all our mineral resources domestically. So back then in 2009 um, there was already a law in place to sort of create this timeline for most of the natural resources that Indonesia has to ensure that they will be um, all of that will be processed domestically, um, supposedly by by twenty fourteen. But in the end, it only applied to, if I'm not mistaken, only nickel and bauxite. So that was the essence of the story, and I think. Um, this was motivated essentially by resource nationalism, the sense that um, Indonesia has always had this wealth of natural resources, but we haven't been able to fully um, enjoy the fruits of, of, of you know, these natural resources, uh, and especially to the local communities as well. So then in 2014, we just banned the export of nickel ore. And this was a policy that was widely criticized, obviously. Um, it's not something that you would do. Uh, it's not in the traditional orthodox economic policy toolkit. It's not something that you generally do. It, it, it distorts trade. It distorts. It creates uh, harmful effects to, to miners, obviously. They're the ones that get punished. But luckily, in the case of our nickel boom, um, we were banning the export of nickel at the same time as... Uh, the Chinese government was looking to um, uh, sort of uh, implement its Belt and Road Initiative, right? So under the Belt and Road Initiative, one thing that most people don't talk about is that the Chinese government also helped Chinese enterprises to um, invest abroad, to expand their presence in other countries. And given our control of nickel, which was very crucial for the production of stainless steel in China, um, the Chinese government somewhat subsidized com- uh, corporations like Xingshan to come to Indonesia to invest and build refineries here, uh, smelters uh, in the country to process our nickel. So it was largely intertwined. So internally, there was this greater move towards resource nationalism. And externally, luckily, we had China also wanting to expand their foreign presence because I think it's very difficult to 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 for for other uh 
for companies from other countries, from European countries, for example, to come to Indonesia and essentially invest in in like Sulawesi or Maluku, which which are the outlying islands that have these nickel resources. And these islands tend to be very underdeveloped in terms of infrastructure, in terms of electricity generation. And the only country uh, and, uh, that would be willing to invest that much in Indonesia would be China. And and they're also, they, they also happen to be the country that needs our nickel um, more than, uh, you know, companies in Europe or, or uh, America. Now, what was the logic behind the export ban? And um, does the Indonesian government have the market power of sorts to decide that? To, to, to Like, you know, does this, is the elasticity uh, more tilted towards exporters leaving the country or them setting up inside the country? Right. Um, yeah. Um, well, essentially, the government could just... Well, well, well when, you, when you need to export, you need license from the government, right? Um, so that's essentially just what the government did. Don't give license to anyone to export abroad. Um, they had... I think they increased... Uh, surveillance as well to make sure that there's no leakage whatsoever and the outcome of that is since many of these exporters are domestically owned com companies so they're mostly local miners um uh the, well the result is well they can't go anywhere else and they just simply stop producing at least for the few years when when the smelters were being set up and there's no demand so if you look at the timeline, 2014 until 2017, there was simply a huge drop in, in production of uh, you know, nickel ores. What is the market structure of the miners like? Are they um, monopolistically concentrated in a few companies? Are they you know, many small ones? I, I, I don't really have a good idea of the what the supply chain looks like here. Right. So, um, well, it's quite segmented. Um, on one hand, you have these large players. So you have, for example, the foreign-owned Vale um, mining company. There's also Antam, which is uh, a state-owned company. You have those companies, if I'm not mistaken, controlling roughly um, 30 to 40% of, of nickel production. But the rest, the rest is produced by mostly um small companies uh because uh, nickel isn't really difficult to mine you don't need very expensive uh, machineries to mine nickel it's something that you can find on the ground especially in like in the early stages of like the nickel boom um so there was a lot of like very small players in a very very fragmented market uh and and i think right after the export ban many of these local players were just sort of wiped out because, well, they, they can't um, survive the way Vale or, or Antam did. Um, so that's a good thing, right? It, it, it avoids the Latin American curse where you have, you know, concentrated gains from uh, resource, from uh, resource lands. Is that correct? Um... I think, but in the end, I think uh, you still have this, uh, a condition where the market is still pretty fragmented, even today. So you have 
so for the for the, the nickel uh, market itself it's still quite fragmented but what you're seeing increasing concentration is in is in the more downstream nickel processing um, sectors that's where you see a lot of concentration and the impact of this is that you have um, essentially an oligopoly on the downstream market and you have more you know uh, more fragmented market in the upstream mining so the result of this is often the downstream um, companies they can force the nickel miners to accept a much lower price compared to what the price is in international markets um, it, it is something that well basic trade theory would predict and that's exactly what happened as well okay so um the way so now has this this large increase in um you know nickel exports where does the, whom does the money go to does it go to foreign owned mining companies does it go to the uh companies that process them uh what's the uh, value by look like right so um well obviously you can't export nickel ore so for the miners um what they're getting is the amount that they're selling to the downstream smelters and the price for that tends to be you know if i'm not mistaken like half of the international price so there's a lot of like um th there's a lot of cost for the upstream miners um and the main beneficiary of this is obviously the downstream smelters because they get to enjoy nickel at essentially like half the price of international markets and this is the reason why there's been a very large boom in 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 the construction of smelters because well essentially if you uh considering that these are very capital intensive industries if i'm not mistaken if you look at like the cost structure of these companies the purchase of nickel accounts for like 50 percent of the cost so essentially with an export ban you get like half of your costs reduced to 50 percent of what it would be if you buy it from international markets so it's usually the downstream smelters that benefit the most now in terms of like the value added well obviously given that these are very capital intensive industries most of the value added will well it will accrue to the companies um so the value added going to the share of going to the share of labor is well it's quite small um and and the net result of that would be um well there's of course employment there's a lot of like um uh value added that spills over to other sectors as well but it's nowhere close in comparison to the value added that is being um, enjoyed by these companies essentially so yeah perhaps that's the paradox in our push to downstream what we're doing essentially is well we haven't yet gotten to that stage where most of the value added stays in indonesia is 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 mostly enjoyed by indonesian workers most of it is still enjoyed by the downstream smelters so um you know what are the government's plans for this uh for the value to be shared by indonesian companies like uh, a lot of times countries force um force companies to enter joint ventures with domestic companies and share the uh i mean the technology isn't, isn't especially advanced here but in this case share the technology and the management experience required to uh build a domestic manufacturing uh, in this case a uh, domestic smelting base um uh, are there any uh, policies built or in development for this 
Yes. Um. Well, if if I look at like the list of current policies, I guess um not yet, and I guess this comes out of like um uh I I don't think there's any orientation yet towards increasing domestic participation. So in terms of like giving tax incentives, there's this um perception that well we shouldn't discriminate between domestic and foreign companies. But of course, the result of that would be, um, you know, given that most of the capital comes from abroad, you would have um, many more foreign companies uh, enjoying that particular tax incentive. In terms of like increasing domestic participation, I don't think there's, there's, um, there's a plan yet for that, um, other than, for example, uh pursuing joint ventures in the more downstream parts of the battery chain, for example. So Indonesia has this state-owned enterprise called the Indonesia Battery Company. And for example, if, if companies like LG or CATL wants to um, build uh, a battery production plan in Indonesia, then they have to participate in a joint venture with this IBC, uh, the Indonesia Battery Company. And... Um, the collaboration involves multiple um, upstream SOEs as well. So the Antam that I mentioned would be the company that's responsible for supplying the nickel ore, for processing it into more um, intermediate um, uh, 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 materials before being processed into battery. So that's probably the most um, salient example of trying to increase domestic participation. But in terms of like the the smelters themselves, trying to make sure Indonesian firms also get to build these smelters. There's not much effort um, uh, other than, for example, SOEs. So yeah, I've not I've not heard very good things about Indonesian SOEs. Although I, I might be wrong, you know. Uh, my understanding is that they're taking a lot of capital, uh, but are not especially very efficient or profitable. Is that correct? Um. Uh, well, I guess that depends. Um, there are some pockets of um uh, successes. Um, our SOEs in the financial sector they perform very well in telecommunications as well. I think even in mining as well. Um, generally we're doing pretty good. But yeah, but generally the perception is, as is often the case elsewhere, SOEs are generally less less efficient compared to um. You know, private companies. Mm -hmm. And um, are these? So I've been reading about uh, President Jokowi's plans. Uh, I mean, he's not going to be president for long anymore. But his plans to uh, modernize the SOE sector. How does that relate to mining? Have there been any big changes? Yes. Um. So there's increasing tendency towards more consolidation, with the hope that this consolidation would lead to better efficiency and such. So previously, uh, this Antam, for example, that I mentioned earlier, um, it was a well standalone SOE. It wasn't part of. Um, it was only the biggest shareholder is the Ministry of SOE, but that's it. It's not linked to the other mining companies in Indonesia. But there's recently a push to create a holding structure, if you may say, it, um, that covers all the mining SOEs in Indonesia called the, if I'm not mistaken, it's called the Mine ID. 
um, you can Google it. So the hope is with this new holding structure, um, there will be more, you know, um, uh, collaboration as well as uh, the 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 interconnection between personnel and 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 capital between these SOEs. So that's like the most recent move. And there's also like you know recently the 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 you know the establishment of our sovereign wealth fund, the Indonesia, um, the, it's, uh, I forgot what it's called, but yeah, we we now have a sovereign wealth fund, and the plan is to use funds obtained from this um, uh, SWF to essentially fund the the operations of other SOEs, make them more efficient as well, because they will be subjected to essentially like you know, international capital and the discipline of it. So, like, the plan would be to list these SOEs abroad? I, I, I didn't fully capture that. So, um, essentially, gather all these disparate SOEs into one uh, holding structure. So, you have essentially a, a super SOE that has control over all these other mm. um, uh you can say SOEs that are lower in hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, okay, and that is to coordinate and get better efficiencies in the uh, mining uh, and smelting process. Yep. Yep. And um, is there, so I want to know a little more about the political economy of this. Um, how much, like, uh, you know, in many countries where you have large natural resources and a government that wants to improve it, pretty quickly you get nationalization or some sort of, you know, exorbitant taxation of these resources. Uh, Indonesia has avoided that. What is the mindset in the within within the government uh, regarding these? Right. Um, I think there's actually a greater move towards nationalization. So one example would be in copper, for example. Um, it was previously controlled by um, Freeport, uh, a U.S. company. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, it was previously, uh, well, it's mostly foreign-owned. So in the sense that the Indonesian government owns like 30% of the shares, the rest is owned by foreign investors. But there's recently a move towards you know increasing the share of the the um, Indonesian government, these companies. So previously it was 70%, now it's, if I'm not mistaken, they now have a controlling state of 51%. So there's actually a, a move towards nationalization was, as well. But this was buying it in the open market, not by uh, forcefully acquiring it. No, yeah. Um, yeah, I was buying it in the open market, but yeah, generally you would, you would associate that with nationalization as well. Okay. okay. Although I'm not sure in nickel though. Um, there's no plans for that yet. Um, okay, okay. And um, so a lot of the countries which have oil lands, uh, they usually, you know, take the oil money and invest it into something else. Are people talking about the something else from the metal from the metal mining or, or, or is that too too early? Right. Um, it's it's I guess there's uh there's a there's this trend towards more diversification into manufacturing, 
EV manufacturing specifically. Uh, but they're mostly from uh, companies uh, operating in coal mining. So, well, not exactly metal mining, but if you look at like um, the natural resources that Indonesia has, coal is probably like one, most profitable. If you look at the export basket, we get like 50 billion um, in export revenues from coal alone uh, every year. And understanding that there's a move towards um, net zero and all that, and coal is going to become uh, well standard asset in the future. There's, there's increasing push to divest into other um, uh, uh, sectors of the economy, principally um, EV manufacturing and even solar PV manufacturing. And then, um, like, uh, so how do you, so the issue with, you know, natural sources are great, but the issue, especially for many of these um, inelastic demand goods, is that the price fluctuates wildly, right? I mean, 2021, 22 was a great year for nickel, but maybe there's going to be a year where it, where, where it isn't so good. Is there, a, you know, Mexico famously hedges oil uh, revenues every single year. The finance ministry wakes up and um, so, uh, buys a hedge from investment banks. Uh, is there any, is there any, uh, are there any mechanisms for that in, in Indonesia? Other than, for example, export taxes for certain commodities and these export taxes tend to the rate of these export taxes tend to increase during uh, commodity boom times and vice versa but that's about it we don't have any other sort of like counter cyclical um, policy to ensure that well when the boom times round out we still have sustainable source of uh, revenue from natural resource lands we don't have uh, anything on that. And w when you look at even at, at our sovereign wealth fund, it's not really oriented towards, you know, um, taking money from these natural resource lands and then investing it elsewhere in the economy or even in foreign assets so as to ensure that there's a steady, sustainable uh, stream of money, even uh, outside of commodity booms, which is what you usually associate sovereign wealth funds with. Well, that's what Norway's SWF does. That's that's what um yeah you know, generally elsewhere, but not in Indonesia. It's mostly just an instrument to attract foreign capital and use it to fund SOE related projects. You know, it it feels more like in like um, Singapore's economic development board than it does for a than it does say like Mabudala or uh, you know Norway's uh, fund. It feels more like an investment attraction board. Yes. Um, this is essentially it, I guess. Um, okay. It's, it's. Um, I think. Uh, if you if you look at what Indonesia has to offer currently in terms of attracting foreign investment, um, most of it are really, um, related to government policies and state control of 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 resources so nickel for example if you want to get in then you have to um have this joint venture with an soe if you want to invest in construction you have to participate and collaborate with um 
the government SOE in construction as well. So a lot of the new opportunities in Indonesia, when you want to come in, you need to sort of get your way through the government. And I guess our SWF is just a means to formalize that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I I I read a small bit of pre-1997 Indonesian economic history. And I, and I understand that at the time, um, the like the main way to get into Indonesia was to work through any of the uh Indonesian billionaire-owned companies, right? And is this uh greater trend in is this greater SOE um control of the economy sort of a way of preventing too much political power in the hands of businessmen? Is it, is, is this a counter reaction to that? Yeah, um, that could be part of the reason, but I think the more important reason is there's the sense in the sense in the government that the private sector is not doing enough. So if you just leave it to 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 the market, you're not going to get as fast a result as you want things to be. So for example, in construction, um, before Jokowi's era, for example, there was a greater reliance on um, a public-private partnership. But it turns out that the process was very slow. It was very difficult to get the private sector to invest in our infrastructure. So in the end, that's why um, the government relied more on SOEs to achieve its um, development goals. So rather than it being a consequence of not wanting the private sector to have more control over the economy, it's more the result of, well, the private sector due to, well, perhaps the the the, the lack of enabling environment. Uh, yeah, that's why they're not investing as fast as the government would want them to. Okay, um, I have a few questions, you know, regarding the uh, the meta level of policy making. So, um, in uh, how do policy ideas work in Indonesia? So, you so obviously in 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 other countries like 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 in Singapore, you know, policy ideas come from inside the government. It's not very outside think tank oriented. It's from inside the government. Somebody puts a policy. It goes to the ministers. It goes to the cabinet. It gets debated. In America, it goes through, you know, think tanks, Twitter, newspapers, etc. What does that ecosystem look like in Indonesia? Yeah. Um, in Indonesia, I guess um, a lot of the process starts bureaucratically. So in the sense that uh, there's usually this long standing arrangement on how to do things for example we have these five-year plans 20-year plans so generally what would happen is that the bureaucrats would first come up with the narrative behind these plans they would craft it design it perhaps with the help of um you know research institutions uh prospera world bank um other organizations so it would come from the bureaucrats first they provide the narrative and then that narrative gets fed into the both the executive and the legislative process. So after everything has been finished, um, it gets into debate in the in the in the in the Indonesian House of Representatives. Uh, but I think 
one thing that's still largely lacking is the process of public participation. So what often happens in Indonesia is that we have this policy that affects the private sector. Uh, but there wasn't much coordination with the private sector beforehand. So when when we do implement the policy, it caught the private sector by surprise and it was very costly for them. So one example would be our policy on banning the export of palm oil last year to ensure that we have a steady supply of cooking oil. So apparently the policy was not very well communicated to the private sector and when it happened, it it it, it created substantial costs for for companies in the palm oil sector. So I guess uh, one thing that's still lacking is that process of public participation. Um, but yeah, generally after that, you would have the same process. It goes through debate in the House of Representatives. Um, sometimes there's a lot of um, informal public participation through, for example, social media debates, which somehow sometimes have a strong input on policy as well. Like our politicians really care a lot about how they appear on social media, the narratives that get talked about. So sometimes in the middle of the process of debate between the executive and the legislative, so sometimes there's uh, outrage on social media that just feeds itself into the policy-making process. And if the, the people don't like it, then uh, uh, um, the policy gets discarded that that happens a lot actually um, in 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 the past few years um now are there, i don't really know very much about, about indonesia besides what comes on the ft and the economist and i know like where whatever the ft and the economist report on countries i know about like singapore india i know it's not you know it's not wrong but it's always incomplete what are some good english language sources i can used to read about uh, Indonesia? Are there any newspapers, magazines? Yeah. Um, I guess, yeah, that's the thing. Sadly, um, even, even, even in Indonesia, our reporting on policy issues, it, they're not as, as, as strong as, as, as they are in like Singapore or other countries. So we don't have as many policy wongs that, want to talk about these stuff no yeah. no but but even like general things right if i if i just yeah. want to learn how, how is the economy doing or, or who are the new big indonesian tv stars i i like you know it, is there any english language uh newspaper magazine that 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 gets me to that well generally it's the jakarta post mm -hmm. and that's the only one i guess um i can't mm -hmm. think of any other english publication that talks about indonesia okay. From an Indonesian perspective, it's either the Jakarta Post. There's, if I'm not mistaken, the Jakarta Globe as well. But I'm not sure if they, if they're still um operating. Okay. Okay. Well, well, they they are still operating. So yeah, either the Jakarta Post or Jakarta Globe. Okay. And are there any books I might want to read? In terms of books, um, so for economic history, um, I really suggest reading the memoirs of the Berkeley mafias. Uh, so people like Vigilante, Sastro, all those technocrats, because they provide first-hand account essentially in terms of economic history of what, of of the Indonesian development experience. Um, 
in terms of like current issues um specifically on mining there's this recent book about to be published by someone from ANU talking about essentially uh you know Indonesia's growth and its relation with natural resources specifically um I forgot ANU as in the Australian National University yeah yeah let me let me go hunt for that It's not yet published, but yeah, if it comes out, it's gonna be quite important. Book. Oh, it's by Eve Warburton. Um, the book is called "Resource Nationalism in Indonesia." Okay. So yeah, I would really well when it comes out, I would really recommend that that you read it, especially okay. if you're interested with like the natural resource aspect of our development. Okay. Got it. Um. And if readers and if listeners of this podcast want to keep in touch with you, how can they do that? Um, yeah, I'm very active on Twitter. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, if if they want to get in touch with me, they can just uh, you know, uh, hit me with a DM. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's and the handle of my Twitter is um at Faris underscore Sina. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, that's essentially it, I guess. All right. Um, thank you very much for coming. I enjoyed this. It should be out quickly. Uh, any any other things you'd want to say? I guess. Um, well, Indonesia is the biggest invisible country in the world, but I don't think this is going to be the case any much longer. Uh, we're seeing a more assertive. Indonesia, we're seeing an Indonesia that's that's um trying to navigate itself between these emerging two blocks. You know, we're we're increasingly entering more multipolar um uh period of geopolitics, and Indonesia is gonna be an emerging player, uh, especially for those who who wants for example access to our resources nickel for example it's very important for the energy transition our um emerging manpower and labor pool that's that's going to be uh, uh you know a powerful resource as well for companies seeking to diversify their manufacturing and building supply chains elsewhere we also have a more i guess more assertive government in indonesia that's more um heard in the international stage so definitely it still is the most invisible country in the world right now but in the next i don't know five to ten years you're definitely going to hear more about indonesia and it's it's very exciting actually i mean um if you get to know indonesia more that's really a lot to its um history to its to its culture that 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 would really be interesting to um to study about Okay, I'll be uh, Jakarta is a small flight away. I'll be uh, looking to visit when I'm, you know, when I'm there someday. Sure, it's only two hours away, right? So, yeah, yeah just call me if if uh, whenever Definitely. you find yourself in Jakarta. All right, thank you. I'm stopping the recording now. Okay.